how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above, where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. Why the next words, and is seated at the right hand of God? Christ ascended to heaven, there to show that he is head of his church, the one through whom the Father governs all things. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the words that we just confessed aloud together from the Heidelberg Catechism are a beautiful summary of why we should care about Christ's ascension. The answer to question and answer 49 describes every aspect of our salvation as individuals as being tied in some way to the ascension of Christ. This is a wonderful, beautiful thing to highlight, to point out. We know that much of the Christian church today were often tempted to reduce salvation simply to the cross, We want to include the resurrection, and here the Catechism tells us all of salvation depends upon the ascension. First, he is our advocate. That's speaking of our sins being forgiven. Second, he sends this, or we have Christ in heaven as a pledge that we will go there as well, and so it speaks of glorification, the future of our salvation. And then third, he sends the Spirit to us, who enables us to seek the things that are above, that is our sanctification, the gift of new life. All of salvation for each of us as individuals flowing from the ascension of Christ. But it is interesting that the catechism here very much is focusing on our individual salvation. And there are those who have said that the catechism at this point is actually misleading, that the scriptures, including the scriptures that we have read and sung together this evening, speak of the ascension as as being about much more than that, about the kingdom of God, about the mission of the church, about Christ ruling and reigning over all things, about his sending the Spirit to empower the mission of the church. And there are those who saying that, which is good things to say, have gone so far as to say the catechism is wrong, to focus so much on our individual experience of salvation. So what I want to do is say, well, no, actually the catechism is right. The reason is what it is talking about here are the things that were being debated at the time of the Reformation. That what had been lost at the time of the Reformation was confidence in the grace of God in our salvation in Christ. And so running through our catechism, seeking to recover that which had been lost, is emphasized God's grace in our salvation, including the ascension. But there are many scholars who would say, That is all true. We can defend the catechism, but we have to make sure to situate it in the context that the reformers were assuming, and that is the bigger story of the Bible, that our salvation, each one of us, is located in a much bigger story of what God is doing. And this is hinted at in question and answer 50. Now, it's not spoken of so much regarding the ascension, but it is spoken of regarding what we call Christ's session, his being seated at God's right hand. That Christ ascended to heaven there to show that he is the head of his church, the one through whom the Father governs all things. So here is what I want to do for a few moments together this evening. I want us to locate the benefits we receive from the ascension as being in the midst of this bigger story of what God is doing in the world. 
And I want us to locate it there using the way Jesus explained his ascension. This is why we read from Luke chapter 24. Those verses we read in verses 36 through 53 through the end of the chapter begin in verse 36 with this, as they were talking about these things. Well, what things? Well, this comes after the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's after the resurrection of Christ. They've heard that Jesus has risen from the dead. None of that makes any sense to them. And they're on the road going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them, but they don't know it's him. They believe he's still dead. They don't think this resurrection thing would happen. It's not something anyone wanted to have happen. Jesus eventually reveals himself to them. It says he's made known to them in the breaking of the bread, a reference to the Lord's Supper. And then he explains to them what is going on. They are confused. And when he explains to them, he says, Oh, those who are slow of heart, excuse me, start at verse 36. Excuse me, verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Here's the reference to the ascension. Jesus says it was necessary for all this to happen. You should have expected it. You should have known this was going to happen. And the reason he says they should have known is the scriptures, what for us we call the Old Testament. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them on all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Based on the Old Testament scriptures, he says they should have known, what does he say? It was necessary that Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory. Well, that then brings us to the passage we read from Luke. Jesus appears to all the disciples. He appears bodily. The bodily resurrection is emphasized. You remember the detail. He's handed broiled fish. So a tasty, savory meal that he enjoys with them, and it's only finally then that they believe that he's actually resurrected. And then he says, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are like headings for the three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures. And he is in effect saying all of Scripture is being fulfilled in him. Verse 46, And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus says that his death, resurrection, and ascension is something that was written of in the Old Testament scriptures. Thus it is written. Now, here is what is so, while you might think frustrating, I think enjoyable, though sometimes frustrating, about how this goes. We don't get to know what Jesus actually pointed out to them. We hear, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, apparently he spent a long period of time pointing to many examples in the scriptures of how he was proclaimed. And yet we don't get to have all those examples. Now we have some, because in the New Testament the apostles go on to do it. Likewise, it's verse 43, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And yet, we don't get to hear all the things he told them. Why? Well, one of the reasons is we are meant to focus on the specific ways that the New Testament goes on to say Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. But one of the reasons that from the early church on, the Christian church has acknowledged, is that Jesus intended for us to explore the Old Testament. 
He intended for us to discover this on our own. He intended it for it to be an all of life, all of the history of the church project to see how the Old Testament scriptures proclaim what he had done and to do it in a way that explained the event of the ascension. So here is what I want to do now for the next part of our time together. Jesus just gave us three headings, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. What I want to do is look at each one of those and consider ways that the ascension is proclaimed and then be asking together, how does that help us understand the ascension? Why the ascension matters? What does it mean that Jesus ascended into heaven? We, oft, we often think of this the other way around. The Old Testament is the weird stuff and Jesus explains it all. But the opposite is the case. Jesus, the event of Christ, was unexpected was surprising, was challenging, is infinitely complex. And the Old Testament scriptures illuminate it, shine light on it, say, here is what has happened. So, beginning with Moses. Well, what does the law of Moses mean? Well, this means the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which of course begins with Genesis. So if we begin with Moses, with the law of Moses, that means beginning at the beginning. Jesus says it was written including in places like Genesis, that Christ would suffer and then enter into his glory. Where? Well, the problem is we often look for predictions. We want to find a place where the Old Testament predicted something, and we can point forward and say, look how the Old Testament was pointing forward in a predicting way to something that would happen later, and then it happened. Now, there are places where that is what the Old Testament does. But that is not usually how the New Testament views the way the Old Testament speaks of Christ. Rather, we find patterns of the way God acted that is then a pattern that was fulfilled in Christ. And the reason that pattern was fulfilled in Christ is not because it was pointing forward, first of all, but because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was always the one through whom that word was given. It was always giving the shape of Christ, and it was doing so for Israel. For example, we just read from the story of Joseph. The outline, the overview of the story of Joseph is that though he was righteous, he suffered. His brothers rejected him. He was thrown into jail unrighteously. Even after he interpreted dreams, he was forgotten by Pharaoh in jail. And finally, after all of that suffering, eventually he rises to power in Egypt. And what is described in Genesis 37 is a... uh, It wasn't 37, what chapter was it? Genesis 41. What's described in Genesis 41 is a kind of ascending to power. So that we have here this pattern of the one God has chosen to be the leader, suffering, ascending to power, and then as a result of ascending to power, what happens? All the world receives bread. All the world goes to Joseph for food. God's chosen one suffers ascends, and then the nations, not just Israel, but the nations are supplied with food, with bread, with sustenance, because he has ascended. We have every reason to think that sort of thing is what Jesus pointed to. He said, look, this is always how God has acted, that his chosen one, his anointed one suffers, and that through that suffering he brings victory, and that that victory is ultimately blessing for all of the world. We see this time and again in the story of God's acting with Israel. This is the sort of thing, the pattern of what God has always done that Jesus would have pointed to. We're also told he points to the prophets. Remember, what's the pattern we're looking for? That Christ would suffer these things and then enter into his glory. 
On Good Friday, we read from Isaiah 53 as a place that speaks of Christ's suffering as being a victory. And one of the clearest expressions of that is Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. There in one verse is the combination. Suffering, but anticipating victory. The prophets were also clear that that victory was something that would be a matter of reigning over the nations. Zechariah 8, verse 22. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Over and over, the prophets speak of, for example, Isaiah 53, the servant who would suffer, but of that suffering leading to a victory in which the nations are included. The prophets. And when the prophets spoke of this, they weren't always saying it in a way that predicted necessarily what Christ would do. They often predicted things that were going to happen sooner than that. Hosea 6 verse 2, speaking of the exile of Israel and the restoration from exile. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. I'm convinced that Jesus would have pointed to a verse like this to speak of him being risen from the dead on the third day. But this was not predicting his resurrection. This was speaking of the restoration of Israel from exile. And it turns out that that exile was focused at the death of Christ so that his resurrection was the restoration of Israel, which then brought in the nations, the prophets. Finally, he says, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, when he says the Psalms, that was often stated as a heading for the section called the writings. This would include basically everything else in the Old Testament. But let's take the Psalms in particular. Ephesians uh, chapter 4 that we just read from cited Psalm 68 as speaking of the ascension of Christ. That it was a psalm anticipating a king in Israel winning a victory and ascending to power. What's beautiful in these Psalms that they often speak of it though in a way that is far beyond what any one Israelite king accomplished in a way that was anticipating some sort of future fulfillment, a future greatness to what God would do. Psalm 2, for example. One that the New Testament is very clear speaks of Christ. Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now this is a psalm we can understand as speaking at various times when kings reigned in Israel, but it was speaking of a way that was far greater than what any one king accomplished. Speaking of what the Messiah, the Christ would do. Psalm 110, the same sort of language. Again, one that the New Testament speaks of is speaking of Christ. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then it goes on to speak of this king reigning over the nations. And what's so beautiful in the Old Testament is those themes came to converge. The servant who would suffer, the Messiah who would reign, converged together as being the same figure. A time of suffering, but a time of the kingdom. A time of suffering and death and rejection, but a time of victory. All of these sorts of things are what Jesus would have been pointing to. And, remember, he tells them, thus it is written, the Christ would suffer, die, enter into his glory, but what else? That forgiveness of sins we proclaimed in his name to all nations. 
this also clearly anticipated in the Old Testament. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us, make his face to shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Psalm 87, speaking of people from all the nations of the world, counting themselves as being born in Zion. Philistia and Tyre, Babylon, Cush, this one was born there, they say. The Psalms sung of this. Well, all of this then is what Jesus was pointing to, that that time of mission, that when he would suffer, enter into his glory, that would then empower the mission of the church. All of this illumines what is happening in the ascension. All of those threads converge and say, when Jesus ascends into heaven, this is what is going on. So, let's then ask, what does it mean for us that Christ ascended into heaven. Given all of those Old Testament themes, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, what does it mean for the life of the church today that Christ ascended into heaven? Our catechism gives us a beautiful answer. I want to situate that answer in this bigger way of looking at it from the Old Testament scriptures. Our catechism tells us very wisely that Christ ascended into heaven as the head of his church, with the church as his body. Two times this is spoken of. In the first answer, when it says, second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge, it says that Christ, our head, will take us, his members, to himself. Christ is in heaven, but he sends his spirits, we are united to him, so he is the head, we are the body. That means he gives us our shape. He determines who we are. He makes us who we are as his church. We as the church are called to have the shape of Christ, the shape of the Son in the world. And that language of the catechism is the basis for that. He is the head, we are the body. Likewise, in question and answer 50, Christ ascended to heaven there to show that he is the head of his church. So if you take all of those themes, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer all these things and enter into his glory. And then you say, that is what gives shape to us. Him ascending on those terms gives shape to who the church is. What does that mean for the church? Well, it means that we are shaped by the present reality of Christ's victory. His ascension was the announcement that all of those Old Testament themes were being accomplished. That what God had said he was going to do, he was doing. That he was conquering his enemies. That he was going to defeat the nations by sending the gospel to the nations. That people from all the nations of the world would come to Christ. The church is to be given its shape by that confidence. Every one of those passages we looked at, however much they spoke of suffering, and they did, the entire story of Joseph was one of suffering. Isaiah 53, that this Messiah to come would be a suffering servant. However much they spoke of suffering, and they do, were relentlessly optimistic, were relentlessly hopeful, were relentlessly positive about what God was going to do. And we as the church are living in the time where God has done that. The church, time and again, is tempted to fall into a kind of pessimism. An assumption that things just inevitably are going to get worse and worse. There's been versions of eschatology in American Christianity that want things to get worse and worse. As long as they get worse and worse, then we know Jesus is going to come soon or something like that. That kind of pessimism has no place in Scripture. 
We live in the time of the victory of Christ, and the ascension celebrates that. The ascension announces that. We have a feast on Ascension Day because we are celebrating the now of Christ's kingdom. And that means the church is secure. The reason the whole story of Joseph happened was to save the line of promise, the covenant people, from that famine that was coming. Because the way the story goes, so we read about the part where food is provided for all the nations. Well, the way it goes is that Jacob and his family, Israel, go to Egypt And they are saved by Joseph, provided for. They are secure because of the ascension of Joseph. The Psalms speak this way. Of God's people, when when God's king is on the throne, God's people are provided for, they are safe, they are secure. The church is secure. And so part of our witness as the church is that our posture in the world should be secure, should be non-anxious in our presence in the world, that we know that we serve a king who is on the throne. And so we proclaim in how we live and how we speak to our neighbors, everyone from the most ordinary of our neighbors up to those in the highest power in the world, we proclaim Jesus is Lord because he has ascended into heaven. Revelation, there there are many who would get all excited about those themes and then want to veer in other direction. So that means we're taking over. Well, yes and no. The lion of the tribe of Judah who was on the throne is also the lamb who was slain. And he remains the suffering servant. And the church that is called to have the shape of the son, proclaiming that victory, also is called to have the shape of the son in his suffering and sharing in the suffering of Christ. Joseph suffered. The servant of Isaiah 53 suffered. The Messiah, the messianic king of the Psalms was David who suffered. Time and again, these two themes go together. And over and over, the church wants to pick one or the other. The great challenge of wisdom is to embrace both. That our king is on the throne as the one who is the lamb who suffered. And the church is called to live that very same way of life. And so, if the church is faithful, proclaiming Jesus is Lord... That does not mean we will wake up one morning and suddenly everything will be wonderful and the church will no longer suffer. There will never be a time before the return of Christ when the church is not called to share in Christ's suffering. And it is that time that we wait for. And so we could say that first point about Christ's victory is anti-pessimism, but the point about Christ's suffering is anti, well, the word for it is triumphalism. Right? The, The idea that If the church is faithful, then we should be seeing the church making a difference in all these different areas in the world. No, we cannot conclude that. You cannot look at the outward circumstances of the church and decide something about whether the church is being faithful. Churches who are faithful suffer. Churches who are faithless often prosper. And it's so strange that we often have trouble realizing this about the church. We know this about individuals. We know that it's true that individuals, when they are faithful, still are called to suffer with Christ. Just from our experience, we know this. And we know that it's true that you cannot look at an individual and their lack of suffering and say they must be doing something right. Well, that is because we are called to have the shape of the Son, and it is the very same thing for the life of the church. In that combination of victory and suffering is the time of mission. 
This is the time of the gospel going forth. You see, what the church is doing as she shares in that suffering of Christ is she's showing the very shape of the gospel, that her mission, that the mission is about the gospel being proclaimed in a way that brings in the nations to salvation in Christ. And so when we talk about optimism, hopefulness, it is about that mission of the church. That regardless of the church's suffering, indeed at times because of the church's suffering, God is acting to make his mission fruitful in the world. Now, brothers and sisters, how do we get on to all of this? What was the goal of all of this? Well, it's to then situate our individual experience in the midst of that. We are called in the life of the church to testify to both of these things. So here we are as individuals with all manner of suffering in our lives, all manner of things that are, that are fearful and anxious, And here we are as individuals with all manner of those kinds of things in our lives gathered to feast, to celebrate what God has accomplished for us in Christ. And the challenge of the Christian life, the challenge of the life of the church is to hold those together. We don't pick one or the other, but that we are here to celebrate what God has accomplished in Christ precisely because we are those who are called to share in the suffering of Christ. And it is on the basis of all of that that we then proclaim the security that we confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism, that Christ is our advocate, that Christ is the pledge that he will take us to himself, that Christ is the one who sends his spirit to enable us to to live in the way of following him, and that he governs all things as the head of his church. All of that is what we celebrate in Christ's ascension. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray.